This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Gypsy gal, the hands of Harlem cannot hold you to its heat. Your temperature's too hot for taming. Your flaming feet burning up the street. I am homeless. Come and take me into reach of your rattling drums. Let me know, babe, about my fortune down along my restless palms. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining us once again to talk about Spanish Harlem Incident from 1964 is another side of Bob Dylan is musician Roy Muller. Hi, Roy. Welcome back. Hi, Rob. Well, thanks very much for having me back. Good to be here. Absolutely. You were on a while ago on episode 163, where we talked about Is Your Love in Vain from Street Legal. And man, if anyone ever wants to just get on the show, pitch a Street Legal song, because I can never (laughs) say no to that. Uh, and we had not done a street legal song for the longest time. And so, of course, back in that episode, we we went through your origin of being a Bob Dylan fan. Uh, you might have inadvertently seeded your next appearance because you mentioned another side of Bob Dylan in your sort of origin story. So, first of all, well done. I, I well, thank it. you. That was unconscious on my part, but maybe <laughs> that's a good thing. Maybe so. But uh, yeah, so we're here to talk about, we can go, we can just jump into the song, Spanish Harlem Incident. So I'm fascinated, Roy. Why do you want to talk about this one? Well, I think it's one of Bob's best vocals. I think it's a really strong performance and uh, the incident may not have actually happened to him. We'll never (laughs) know, but he sounds like he's really living it when he's performing it. So I think it's a, it's not a Bob Dylan recording that I came to. In my first four or five years of fandom, I only discovered it when I physically bought the vinyl. Uh, So I think it's a really rewarding discovery for anyone going on a Bob Dylan journey into a few of the deeper cuts. Another Side is a record that I I find I don't listen to all the way through a whole lot. There's certainly a bunch of brilliant songs on it, but I feel like, uh, you know, there's just like some songs I'm like a little iffy on, and I, I straight up think that, Ballad in Plain D is like his worst song as a, his worst all original Dylan song. Uh, and so I tend to pick and choose pieces from it. You know, I'm like, oh, I'll listen to Chimes of Freedom. I'll listen to Any Me, Babe, or whatever. But I don't listen to it as a, as a cohesive piece all the way through. And this was a song that for whatever reason never really clicked with me. All the times I've listened to another side, I just kind of was like, mm, that's okay. All right. And it was, you know, I just sort of like put it in the back of my mind, like, all right, whatever. And then a couple of years ago, Joan Osborne released her all Bob Dylan covers record. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have Joan on the show talking about it when she was out promoting it. And I listened to that record and she covers it there and she gave it this marvelously like slinky kind of sexy rhythm to it. Maybe part of it's just her vocal, but there was something about the arrangement of it that I was like, wow, this is great. This is real. Like, I love this. How is, hmm. And so I went back and listened to the original and all of a sudden I enjoyed it way more than I had the other. So I don't know what it was in the intervening years 
that made me be able to appreciate it now when I wasn't really able to years ago when I first got the record and, and the couple subsequent listens. But now I really, I really like it. I really find it it's so unique in terms of, in terms of his, gen, his general canon and it's certainly unique to the record. And so it's a song that I appreciate way more now than I ever did before. Again, I don't know why, what it is about me that's changed, but there's something about it that is about how wonderfully vulnerable he is in this particular song that I really like. And again, I feel is unique to, to his general canon. I, I totally get what you're saying. And I think maybe when Joan Osborne recorded it, I've not actually heard a version. I'll have to rectify that after this podcast. I, mm. I found a version by Dion, which was uh, rather I heard strange. that one too. Yeah. Yeah. 1978. It almost sounds like there's Steely Dan session men on it. It's really air quotes arranged, you know, there's a lot going on in it, but Joan Osborne, yes. Um, after it, I remember listening to her on the, on your podcast and, uh, I, she was in a film actually called Standing in the Shadows of Motown. Yes, um, yes. Which is one of the greatest films ever. Really poignant film because so many people passed away that were featured in the film either before the film came out or, or soon after. But she, she really did make a good impression on me in that film and, and also listening to her episode of Pod Dylan. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll have to check that out. But I wonder if she maybe just held the, the song up out of the kind of quagmire of the whole Beaujolais-infused, inconsistent, <laughs> uh, another side of Bob Dylan platter. You know, I, d- I don't think I've ever played Black Crow Blues since uh, since I bought the record. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, although I tend to listen to vinyl all the way through, uh, I don't really put the vinyl on, even though I still have it for that mm-hmm. record. It's too, uh, yeah, it's so it's so inconsistent. Yeah. Uh, you know, chimes of freedom uh, you know and things like that real masterpieces my back pages and then yeah the, the old quality control <laughs> right. dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yeah we all know the legend that he purposely set out to do this all in to do that record all in one go which again you think about nowadays about how many musicians take months slash years to put a record together and the idea you would produce an entire one and it's it's just one of those things where I'm like, yeah, he probably should have given this a second night. He probably should have not been in the headspace of like, no, we're going to do it all in one go. Cause then there's some stuff on there that I'm like, eh, really? I'm like, okay, whatever. Uh, I and totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there's, uh, there's a lot of kind of nastiness. I think on that record, there's a lot of sweetness, but there's a lot of nastiness that I don't think is particularly, um, inviting, uh, you know, or leaves it really like, a good taste in your mouth and mouth. But this, I the, the whole idea of like he's met this, he's had this experience, and we know that Bob is able to create songs from every conceivable event in his life. You know, like he's able to 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 pull anything and turn it into a song. And I I sort of conjure this wonderful image of him going to this fortune teller in Spanish Harlem for like a laugh. You know, like oh hey, that'll be fun. And then he's so struck by this strange woman that he meets that his head is just spinning and he walks out. And then I could just picture like that night. He's like, I got to jot this down. And that, 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 that wonderful like frisson of like, wow, I just met somebody really amazing. And you know, you know, you maybe know, uh, this is, I'll never see them again. This is not going to be a relationship, but 
wow, that person really set me spinning. And then he's able to capture that in this song, which I find, again, so charming. I don't know what was wrong with me when I couldn't appreciate it back then, but I at least appreciate it now. Well, I think it's a sweet song for sure. And there's a, another sort of Spanish-themed song on the album in, to Ramona, or you know, mm-hmm. Hispanic-themed song. And I think that's quite a sweet song as well. And it's a real vignette, I think. It's only about two minutes, 25 seconds. And it's interesting, I think, the title Spanish Harlem Incident, it makes it seem like there's an edge to it, or like Mm. it's a a short story, perhaps, or a a, a short movie. And you think about Spanish Harlem in 1964, uh, I doubt it was the most salubrious place you could go. Um, I think there's probably quite a few drugs around. There's probably quite a few, there's quite a lot of poverty. Bob actually says in the song that he's homeless and that might be sort of him playing on that that uh, situation in a way. He feels that he has no place and he wants the girl, the woman to make his pale face fit into place. Hmm. So, And Bob was never more white than during that kind of hipster period. You know, I... <laughs> He's. I don't really think of Dylan as you know any particular color, you know. And of course, he's 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 Jewish and he's morphed into many different appearances. But I think when you see him from that sort of uh, the protest period through, don't look back. You see a really white guy, <laughs> and then you see Dylan on the front cover of the Masterpieces record or uh, Desire, and. Uh, you know, he seems to be much more sort of, um, he could almost pass for being Hispanic, you know. So it's it's interesting. He's really seeing himself as this pasty, weedy white guy who wants to join in with what he perceives as the Spanish culture around him. And m- maybe he's using a little bit of cliche. I wonder, is she really a fortune teller or does he just think that because she's a, an attractive Spanish girl that she has all these qualities that he's investing on her. That's Mm. something I've tended to wonder about that. Um, But he really paints a picture with those, uh, those flashing images and uh, for such a start recording, because he doesn't use any harmonica on the actual finished recording. It's just him, the guitar and that voice with a, a touch of reverb on it. And it, it really cuts through. It feels like it's cutting through a, a warm summer night to New York. And mm-hmm. he recorded it in a warm, I assume a warm summer night, a June night in New York. So I feel it's there's a real verity quality to the recording. And because he sings it with such lack of detachment for Bob, I think you know it really cuts through in a way that a lot of the cuts on that record do not. Yeah. Well, first of all, points for using salubrious and you just tossed it off. So oh. offhandedly oh, like gosh. that, that's really quite impressive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love vocabulary words, but yeah, I mean, first of all, you're, the use of the word incident uh, again is, is very interesting because as you say, that sounds negative. You know, could mm-hmm. be, it sounds like that's a, you know, when there's, when, when something is referred to as an incident, that generally has a kind of negative 
cast to it. You're like, oh, that's something really bad happened. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have to be. It, you know, an incident, I think if you look it up in the dictionary, incident could just mean anything. It's not necessarily negative. We've come to associate it with sort of something negative, but not necessarily. And he's having this moment. And yeah, he does. He, he's able to paint this marvelous picture. Bob has always been, it's seemingly very Zelig-like, and then he is able mm-hmm. to kind of blend into these cultures and assume their shape a little bit for his own purposes. And, you know, depending on your point of view, some people say, oh, he's like a dilettante and he's just kind of using this and not really engaging with it. And other people say, no, 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 he's, he immerses himself in it to the point where it does seem genuine. And as you talked about, it could be whether he's a born again Christian, you know, or he's singing Tin Pan Alley Sinatra songs, you know, or he's become a country crooner. You know, we're only five, we're only five years away. From him becoming a country crooner at this point, you know, um, or just, you know, in a couple of years, it become like the hipsterest hip guy that ever hipped, you know, I mean, he's able to change shape. So uh, amazingly, but here, yeah, I mean, you say he is kind of like this sort of scrawny kid. And yet he is like the coolest of the cool here. You know, it's just kind of amazing. He can just sort of take that persona on. And you're right. It may not even literally be that he is sitting at a fortune teller, it could just be that he's that's that's the role he's assigning this woman. For all we know, this was someone he saw in a bookstore. This is someone yeah. working at a counter that bought that handed him a slice of pizza. It could be, you know, and it could be anybody, but he's dropping all this onto them. And this person might not ever know that he ever did this. But again, he paints such an amazing picture. And it is incredibly for as you mentioned, such a short song, like such florid language. You know, gypsy gal, you've got me swallowed. I have fallen far beneath your pearly eyes so fast and slashing and your flashing diamond teeth. The night is pitch black. Come and make my pale face fit into place. Ah, please let me know, babe. I'm nearly drowning. If it's you, my lifeline's trace. I mean, it's like, wow. You know, like we are like sub level deep into like all these various references and and meanings. And in something, as you said, it's like a two and a half minutes. Yeah, and it doesn't have any of the harshness that I think you find on bringing it all back home. And it is present on another side, as we've mentioned, but uh, there seems to be something really quite endearing about uh, the way that he's gone gung-ho into this evocation. And I think it's maybe the last of that sort of villain that we... That, that we see maybe there's a little bit in love minus zero no limit but still mm. there's a bit of strangeness where the girl's like some raven with a broken wing and all this that <laughs> this seems much more giving in a way but of course he's completely obsessed with himself he, he says <laughs> uh, i've been wondering all about me <laughs> so it's all about zimmy really at the end of the day but i also think he taps into a preoccupation with Spanishness that had been happening in pop music around that time. You think of Spanish Harlem, Benny King. Right, that was a big hit. Uh, yeah, but Sharitha did a great version as well. And, uh, of course, he'd, he'd done uh, Spanish boots of Spanish leather. And I'm sure, as I do, he loved El Paso by Marty Robbins. And uh, you think of later recording Spanish is the loving tongue. And Mm. there's uh, definitely an ongoing uh, preoccupation 
of, of bobs. And I think, and under the boardwalk as well, all the, they might, these records that came out of New York around that time, they might not even have a Spanish theme in the lyrics, but they kind of sound like uh, they could be playing in, uh, you know, in, in a kind of Spanish area. And they, they carry that warmth that you associate with that particular part of New York for all its poverty and the scrappy urban renewal attempts and the violence. There must have been a, a glamour that he latched onto. And uh, I think the urgency of the actual recording kind of reflects that as well, as I was saying about the, the word incident. Although there's a, a certain generous and gentle quality to his musings, the actual performance, the way that he's hitting the guitar, the way that he's he's singing, that's really quite impassioned. And again, maybe the uh, that was some of the positive effects of the Beaujolais he was he was drinking mm-hmm. that night. You know, to put it simply, he he just really got into it when he was singing it. Mm. There's a whole thing on online. I've seen him. You probably have too. Of like people that turn Bob Dylan song titles into like uh, paperback book covers. Mm, you know, that's like a that, thing. Yeah. You know, where because so much of so many of his songs have that, and this ha- this has that sound to it. You could imagine some cheap paperback novel being called Spanish Harlem Incident. You know, <laughs> like a yeah. Robert McGinnis painted cover and that kind of thing. Like you totally yeah. could imagine that. Or it also sounds a little like. It could be um, like a live television show, you know, like like Texaco Star Theater kind of thing or mm. like CBS Playhouse. We're going to present to you tonight Spanish Harlem Incident. You know, this I is written, totally written by yeah. Patty Chayefsky, you know, <laughs> that kind of feel to it. Yeah, very much. And it seems kind of 1964, I guess, in that way. It seems uh, you can imagine or the kind of Johnny Staccato theme playing or something. Yeah, it's right. <laughs> and i guess yeah i think i think that's very appealing and yeah it seems to sum up a time and a place which um, i was never there i've got my own sort of mental projections but i think the fact that he recorded it in new york and the song's about another part of new york and it's a very it takes place on a warm night or a warm afternoon in, in in spanish harlem and it was recorded in the summer all these things sort of synthesize, I think, for making it so, well, I don't want to say convincing, because I don't think there's a, a, a truthful tale necessarily being told, but it is convincing that he's really feeling this song as he sings it, and uh, that's more than enough to sell it to me. Right. The truth of it is he is putting across how he felt in that moment or how he's feeling right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is the, that's the truthful part. And you know, it's funny, just over the course of us talking in the last like just 20 minutes, I was wondering why didn't this resonate with me when I was younger and why does it resonate now? And I think about it and I'm like, well, part of it might have been because when I first heard this song, this is when I just started getting into Bob, I had not really had a whole lot of experience in, in relationships, you know? And, uh, I read comic books as a kid, coincidence. And, and, but then, <laughs> you know, but then later on, I I did, and I had more experiences of understanding that side of myself because I've had those experiences where I've met someone, and sometimes it was in a romantic setting, other times not. Sometimes it was just on a on a 
like a friendly level, but you've met somebody and in a very short period of time, they really left an impression on you in a a really powerful way. And again, sometimes, sometimes it was romantic. Sometimes not. Sometimes it was just something I saw on television. Someone I saw on television where I went, wow, I'm really captivated by this thing, this person, that the way they're talking, the way they're sitting, the way they're, you know, whatever. And I didn't even know that about myself. I didn't know that that was something of interest to me, but it's really holding my attention. This this person is really, really captivating me in a way that I would never expected. And so to me, that's what I'm hearing this. I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm getting across is that he's met this person. Again, we don't even know that it's a woman for Pete's sakes. He's calling her gypsy gal. Does it need to be? He could just be doing that to throw us off. You know, he just wants to refer to them as a gypsy gal. But it's that that's what he's getting across in this is that this kind of like, wow, I've had this experience and I'm so thrown that I'm going to drop all of this mad poetry on you. Again, this person probably didn't even know that they inspired this out of Bob Dylan. But I'm going to drop all this man. I'm going to throw all these images at you because I'm so besotted with this. And I'm going to pack it all in in this very tight space here. I'm going to go on and on about, you know, I'm wondering. Yeah, I'm wondering about you. But as you talk about that line, I've been wondering all about me. I'm now interrogating my own reaction to you. Because this is surprising me. I didn't realize I would have this reaction to this kind of thing. And now I'm fascinated by my own self. Well, of course, Bob's fascinated by himself. Of course he is. He's been chronicling what he thinks for 60 years. But it is that kind of thing, you know. And so, like, yeah, that's kind of what he's getting across. And in the middle of, again, again, a record that I, as you talk about, veers to me wildly from kind of nastiness and petulance to these grand, amazing statements. I mean, the next song in this record is Chimes of Freedom. I mean, talk about just being all over the place in this record. And it, as you say, it might have been you know, a little bit of the Beaujolais talking. You know, it loosened him up in a way. But yeah, I think that's just, again, even the course of this conversation, I'm thinking that might be why it's resonating with me at the age I am now when when I was 19, I was like, eh, all right, whatever. Absolutely. Well, I was listening to the uh, the podcast about... Uh, was it you're a big girl now? And yes. um, our conversation was short and sweet. It nearly knocked me off my feet. This is a, the same effect in Bob, but there's no actual evidence there was a conversation, but he's still been knocked off his feet, as you say. It could have just been a glance. He might not even have made eye contact. He's noticed her mm-hmm. her eyes, but uh, this you don't know if it's been reciprocated or not. Right. And yeah. yeah, I think that's a that's an experience that's part of growing up, certainly for a lot of adolescent males, and I assume for people of every gender, that uh, you have that connection, and it doesn't even need to have a particularly sexual element to it. It's just suddenly there's a world of uh, possibility that you didn't know was there about the world itself, and that. As an adolescent or a young person, you kind of reflect that back on you. So he's seen this scene. He's had this incident in Spanish Harlem, and it's all back in him. He's wondering about me. So it's it's sort of blown his mind in the in the heat of an an afternoon or an evening. I think, and as you say, he he just he has the skills and 
he has the inclination to set this down in two minutes, 25 seconds for us. <laughs> and whatever else he might have been doing on that album, I think he's he's created something visceral in the fact that it cuts through all the detritus of time and also the detritus of some of the rather lesser tracks from that album. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a real, I wouldn't say a diamond in the rough, because how can you call my back pages and Chimes of Freedom and all I really want to do and things like that rough. And Amy it, Babe, yeah. And <laughs> Amy Babe and Tura Mona, yeah. yeah. There are classic <laughs> songs, but yeah, for me, the album does get weighed down by, by some of the other tracks. But taken in isolation, I think this really, really works uh, as stepping out from the baggage of being Bob Dylan, I guess. There's there's no protest in it. As I said, there's not even any harmonica in it. And it just feels he is, as David Bowie once said, chameleon, comedian, Corinthian and caricature. <laughs> That's great. I was trying to work that into conversation. <laughs> Well done. Thank well you. Done. You feel that you're you're getting a touch of, I'm not going to say the real Bob, but a real Bob when he's singing this song on that night in June 64. Can I ask you, have you seen Citizen Kane? Yes, I have, yeah. Okay. There's that scene in Citizen Kane. And of course, I did a whole other podcast called Citizen Kane Minute because I always have to plug uh, the things that I'm doing. But um, there's that scene where where the reporter goes to see Mr. Bernstein, who's now aged and talking about the late, great Citizen Kane, late, great Charles Foster Kane. And he has this seemingly disconnected ramble uh, where he says that he was on a ferry and this was decades ago. And he was on a ferry and he saw a girl in a white dress carrying a pink parasol. And he said, uh, I never spoke to her. She didn't notice me at all. But he says, I think it's been 40 years. I don't think a day has gone by where I haven't thought of that girl. You know, and it's this, this, you know, this amazing speech about the persistence of memory and what things that, you know, it's so funny. We can't even often guess what our own reactions are going to be to things. So it seems like, you know, wow, such folly to try and guess what other people are going to do in a situation because we don't even know ourselves a lot of times, you know, and you were talking about how this relationship might not have been reciprocated in any way. And I won't get into the details because making it specific will sound silly, but I remembered watching a show on television once and it was like a panel show and they had this guest on and it was this, this woman. And there was something I knew who she was. I was familiar with her, but I didn't have a particular attachment to her one or the other, but there was something about the way she talked and the way she sat in the chair on this panel show that just absolutely enraptured me. Just, I was fascinated by it. And I had never thought to that moment that I was ever attracted to that kind of person. And yet I walked away like, Whoa, that just, that just hit me right in the, right in the solar plexus, you know? And I had never considered that before. And Time has gone on and I realized that I have been since been in relationships with women similar to that. I'm like, wow, that one little moment on a random TV show that I watched set the tone for me in my future relationships in a lot of ways. And it's kind of amazing. And, you know, in the final verse in the song where Bob says, you 
we already talked about it, but wondering all about me ever since I seen you there on the cliffs of your wildcat charms. I'm riding. I know I'm around you, but I don't know where. Just again, those are like some of the best lines I've ever like. Imagine saying to someone, referring to them with their wildcat charms. How could that not charm anybody? When you refer to that, such a wonderfully evocative phrase of saying you and your wildcat charms. I don't know if Bob ever, again, we don't know if he ever talked to this person, but man, imagine being able to pull that one out. Just how much that would probably floor the average person hearing that phrase. I I agree. And I think just as you were saying that, I was thinking wildcat. Yeah, that's a, that's a track by Gene Vincent. Mm. Uh, a single by Gene Vincent, and I know Bob was a bit of a Gene Vincent fan. Mm-hmm. And then Gene Vincent also had a song called Baby Blue. So, oh, uh, yeah, I think in the biograph notes, maybe Bob says something about, uh, you know, I could have been singing about uh, Gene Vincent's Baby Blue. Maybe that's just typical Bob obfuscation, but there might <laughs> be an element of truth there. You know, Bob was more connected to straight ahead rock and roll than certainly a lot of people in Greenwich Village would have wanted to believe at the time. Mm-hmm. So there might be a little bit of his uh, Gene Vincent, the Gene Vincent lexicon of wildcats and babies blue coming through there as well. But I agree. When I was just re-listening just before we started talking, Rob, to the to the original recording, it was those lines that really grabbed me. And his guitar goes really quiet. I'm not sure if he's... He's playing a real, something really bluesy or he slightly fumbles it, but there's a real urgency as the song ends. His guitar seems to be hammering home something urgent. Not, it doesn't speed up or it, it doesn't fall apart, but it's a real performance. It's more of a performance. I also listened to his recording from the Philharmonic Hall concert from later that year. It's more of a performance than the live performance. He's, he's I think... I think he's really he's really into this song and he didn't do it much. I know we'll probably get once. Place, yeah. Did it one yeah. time on on Halloween night 1964 yeah. uh and which which has uh, been saved for posterity on the Bootleg series volume 6 live yeah. 1964. But yeah, what a what a shame that this has only been trotted out one time. I would think this would be such a great it's such a great live song to do because it's it's so personal and sort of singular in its own way. Yeah. And then it ends with that great line, if you could tell, so I could tell if I'm really real, which is just a marvelous line. It's a, yeah, that that is I that is such a, a, a tragedy, really. Well, I mean that's a too much of a word, but it's it's a real shame that this has been so kind of buried by him and just forgotten about because I think it's just it's just so terrific. Is that because the song isn't as malleable as some of his other songs? Maybe even a bit of a left-field theory, but because the recording seems to me to be the the sort of ultimate realisation of what he could do with it, because I think the Philharmonic Hall version doesn't match that live in the studio version. I agree. And it's, yeah, and it's like, why did Elvis never do If I Can Dream Live? You know, Because he, he, he totally nailed it. On that, on the record and the t- the comeback special, I think you know even subconsciously you think, well, I I can't come close to that, and 
yeah, some of Bob's lesser songs maybe are are more malleable and therefore easier to revisit in in concert. It's a young man's song as as well, although I don't think that uh, the way that he delivers it, and maybe you know, so is Bob Dylan's dream. But again, that's I saw him do Bob Dylan's dream in ninety one, and that right. was that was quite something. And it seemed like an old man going back to his youth, you know, and he was, he wasn't even 50. He was 49 at the time. Mm. So it's, it's, it was ridiculous to think that, but uh, yeah, that was a song that he felt, I think he could, he could run with. Maybe he couldn't really run with Spanish Harlem incident because it was this, I don't want to mix metaphor, metaphors, but can you run with a snapshot? So I'm getting visions of polar, somebody holding a Polaroid now, but uh, yeah. I, d- I just wonder if because it was that singular stolen moment that he evokes, that that meant it wasn't something that he was discovering new things in or potentially discovering new things in by revisiting. It could just be completely random and it he he maybe shortlisted it but, ne- but never performed it. But I do wonder if the singular nature of it, just in capturing... That incident is what maybe limited it in potential future live performance. Yeah, I mean, he's talked about he's given interviews where uh, specifically Caribbean Wind, which actually we even mentioned in our previous episode together, where he talked about that he lost the thread of it. Yeah, over time, over the myriad versions of it, and that's why he finally dropped it. And in his mind he was getting further and further away from the original inspiration uh, when of course we're coming at it after the fact. And it's like, what are you talking about? Every version of this is genius. What are you talking about? You know, but to him, he's lost the, the, the spark of it. And he, he doesn't, he's you know, he, he's like uh, a guy like trying to, you know, st- make fire at a, you know, at a campfire. He's like, you know, like blowing on it, trying to keep that spark going. And to him that, and maybe so yeah, maybe the original inspiration for this song, he doesn't feel it anymore. You know, it's like he had that initial, initial rush and he felt it in that night in June in 1964, but post that he doesn't feel it anymore. Now, I mean, sometimes he must just fake it. I mean, I can't believe he's felt all along the watchtower all 2,000 <laughs> times that he's done it. There's got to be some nights he's just playing it just to play it, you know. But, but yeah, maybe so. Maybe that's it. It is a shame because it, I think it's such a charming song. And it, it, although I also agree, it, it is kind of in some ways a young man's song. I mean, the idea of, again, the last line about, I know people you surround me so I can tell if I'm really real. Yeah, that's, you know, kind of like a younger guy's sentiment. They're still trying to figure out who they are. Once you get to be a certain age, you're like, all right, all right I kind of know who I am, ideally, at that point. And this random encounter isn't going to necessarily going to knock me on my heels, as he mentions in the song. But I don't know. We all can have those experiences, different kinds of experiences later on. And But I would love to hear him try it again. I, I think it I, it would be interesting to hear... 81 year old Bob Dylan voice try and get into that, this kind of useful joie de vie kind of thing that, that, that he's pulling across some song. But I mean, we could be happy it exists at least for this one recording. As far as I know, I've never heard an alternate take. I know that there were some songs that night that were required a couple of takes for him to get down, but I've never heard an alternate one. So this might be the sole 
version of it. He banged it out, the one that you got to write, and they moved on to the. Obviously, when you're trying to do a whole album in one night, you're definitely in the mindset of like, let's move on to the next thing. Let's get. I, I got to get motorcycle nightmare off for this. <laughs> yeah. I got to. You know, um, well, that's but, another uh, title. I think that that could be a kind of pulp novel or a, oh, totally. a short film. You know, totally, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, we just talked about that that long ago. It absolutely has that kind of uh, feel to it. But yeah, it's a it's a really great song. And as I've said on previous many previous episodes, like so many Bob songs, when I got to them when I was younger, didn't land on me. And then I get older and I go, wow, there's so much more here. And so I feel like this song is just laying in wait for me. And this is one of those songs. So this is, you know, this is great that we had a chance to do this because I feel like, oh, I got a chance to kind of like, it's a, it's not a new Bob song, but it's new ish. Yeah. It was always kind of in uh, way off to the, you know, bad deep right. And now I'm like, oh, now it's, I can listen to it again with fresh ears and it's totally charming. Well, I'm very happy to be of service. It's, <laughs> it's right. funny when you were talking about Citizen Kane because, and then talking about older Bob, because there's some of older Bob kind of makes me think a lot of the magnificent Ambersons, you know, riding in a buggy and, and all this kind of stuff. I imagine he goes back that far as when that, that film was set. There's mm-hmm. some, the, the, the age that, yeah, the dawn of the uh, industrial back. era and the car, That's the right. automobile era, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So it'd be, uh, I think he could carry it off. I think he could, I would certainly rather hear him sing that than all along the watchtower if I went to see him in concert. Mm-hmm. I, oh, God. I, yeah. yeah, and I think the arrangement, the band could do a really nice arrangement of it yeah oh i'd love to hear an very yeah. electric and electric take on this that would be yeah but gentle gentle yeah. yeah yeah like i mean the birds did a really nice kind of straightforward electric arrangement of it and yeah i'll, I'll have to check out joan osborne's but yeah the i think there is definitely something in in that song that bob could so much time has elapsed that uh it, it, i'm sure it would feel new to him as well now if he if he attempted it I like to think of it as a almost like a kind of souvenir that uh, he, he occasionally polishes but doesn't put on public display. Yeah, yeah, completely. You know, it's funny you mentioned the magnificent Ambersons, and it's another. I'm a huge Orson Welles fan. It's another masterpiece of a movie, even in its butchered form. But um, and I, I've said in other episodes, like you know, Bob could write an amazing travel book because the guy has seen every inch of the world at this point and and so that would be fascinating to hear him just talk about what it's like you know oh i visited this diner in poughkeepsie or i went to this and this or whatever he could also write an amazing movie review book Mm. (laughs) you know what i mean like i'd love to see bob dylan let loose in the criterion closet that would be (laughs) that would be fascinating to hear him talk about because the man loves movies and he's constantly pulling references for movies obscure movies also classic hollywood and things he loves bogart and james cagney but i would love to just hear him talk about movies they do that on criterion all the time where they Mm. they take somebody and sit them down and just ask them about their favorite movies and you're like oh wow this guy is loves the films of al pacino i wouldn't expect that or this guy loves this that would be fascinating like and i almost think sometimes that would be freeing to him of not having to be Bob Dylan and talk about how, how brilliant his own work is. Just be like, hey, Bob, 
what are your 10 favorite movies? Like, what do you yeah. like to watch for fun? Like, that would be fascinating. It would be, just like it was fascinating when he did the interview with Jeff Slate and uh, he said that he was a fan of Coronation Street and right. a long-running British soap opera. Right, right. Things like that. There's going to be a few curveballs with Bobby, of course. It'd so be amazing. Yeah. yeah, it would be amazing. Well, I think that's a great pitch. Hopefully not like his comedy uh, pitch that he tried to make and then I think he sort of uh, decided when he was on the way in to see the guy in the elevator <laughs> that he, he doesn't want to do it anymore. anymore. That's right. <laughs> Quintessentially Dylan. Very but much so. I think he's made his own eight, eight millimeter flickering movie of the summer of 64 for us to enjoy and with, with Spanish Harlem incident. And uh, so I'm very grateful to Bob for that. Oh man, that's a per- uh, branding it there. That's the perfect way to describe it. That's absolutely great. So, well, Roy, Thank you once again for coming back. Thank you for pitching this song. I love re- rediscovering songs from the Dylan songbook. It's so fascinating. And so I absolutely go listen to that. Go listen to the whole, the whole John, John Osborne album. It's terrific. But that will do. And Certainly. I even told her in the interview, that was my favorite track of the ones that she did. I was like, Oh, this one. Oh man, this is really killing me. So thank you once again for, for coming back. I really well, appreciate you. it. Before we sign off, I want to find out from you and I would. Since you're on the show list and we have a new exit question, I haven't had a chance to ask you, so we'll ask you now. If there's any recording session for anything Bob's ever done that you could sit in on and just sit in the corner and listen to, what what would it be? I think it would be the soundtrack for Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Explain. Well, I think <laughs> that for me, the more reverb on a recording, the more mysterious and intriguing it is. And that's one of Bob's few really reverb-heavy records, along with Nashville Skyline. And that, as I say, creates a, a sense of mystery for me. And I would like to be sat there in Burbank Studios seeing him reconnect with Roger McGuinn, who's mm-hmm. on the album, and mm-hmm. Bruce Langhorn, who played on uh, Bringing It All Back Home. And mm-hmm. Lee has um, possibly... Justification in laying claim to being the Mr. Tambourine Man of the song as well. So, I, yeah, I think just being sat in, and we all know knocking on heaven's door, and probably some of us, myself included, are maybe a little tired of knocking on heaven's door, even when it's Axl Rose singing it. But there's a real mystery and constant freshness about the recording. If you sit down to the 19 and listen to the 1973 recording of Knocking on Heaven's Door, it is something else. It, it's way more than just the song. So I, I think, and I love Billy as a song in, in all its versions. And I think all but one version were recorded in uh, those sessions in, in Burbank. So yeah, I just like to be around for that. And maybe Nashville Skyline is a, as a close second because I'd like to know where the echo comes in. Do they record with the echo and the musicians respond to that? Or do they stick it on later? Or is there an echo chamber out the back in some sort of bomb shelter? You know, all that kind of stuff. It's a bit niche, but it it really fascinates me. Okay, solid answer. You also get to watch him butt heads with Jerry Fielding, who hated knocking on heaven's door. That'd be kind of fun to watch. Yeah, there'd be a bit of of aggro in the air. Can't miss Great. All right. Well, that's an absolutely great answer. So, well, Roy, thank you once again. Why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? 
Um, my Twitter handles at Roy Peter Muller, and my music's at uh, Roy Muller Bandcamp. Have you ever tried to sing this song? No, but um, yeah, once I've listened to Joan Osborne showing me how to do it, I'll uh, I'll maybe give it a go in the shower. All right. <laughs> that sounds good. All right. Well, again, Roy, thank you so much. It was great uh, talking to you. And if, uh, thank you for listening. You can find all the back episodes of the show over on our new website, which is fmpods.com. Again, we're part of the FM Podcast Network now. And you can find the show over on uh, Twitter at pod underscore Dylan. So uh, that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will see you later. Bye. If we could find out what he meant by his last words as he was dying. That rosebud, huh? Maybe some girl. There were a lot of them back in the early days. It's hardly likely, Mr. Bernstein, that Mr. Kane could have met some girl casually and then 50 years later on his deathbed. Well, you're pretty young, Mr. Mr. Thompson. A fellow will remember a lot of things you wouldn't think he'd remember. You take me. One day back in 1896, I was crossing over to Jersey on the ferry. And as we pulled out, there was another ferry pulling in. And on it, there was a girl waiting to get off. A white dress she had on. She was carrying a white parasol. And I only saw her for one second. She didn't see me at all. But I'll bet a month hasn't gone by since that I haven't thought of that girl.